Good morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here, and we are continuing our series, Happy Christmas, where we've been looking at popular Christmas songs and how they actually speak to the real message of Christmas. And our song today is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and it's actually the first time it was ever sung, I just found this out, was actually in one of my favorite movies of all time. Some of you may know it. It's Meet Me in St. Louis with, with Judy Garland. And uh, it, it comes right after my favorite scene. So in the movie, Judy Garland, she's supposed to go to this dance. And the, she's been pining for the boy next door the whole movie. And uh, then the boy next door asks her to go to the dance. And they're supposed to go. And it's going to be so great. But then the night of the dance, his tux gets locked up. And he can't go to the dance because back then, you couldn't go to the dance without your tux, I guess. So she goes to this dance, and through a series of circumstances, she has to dance with terrible dancers all night long, like running around the dance floor, stepping on her feet. And at the end, her grandfather rescues her, and he dances with her, and he takes her, and he sees this, you see this giant Christmas tree, and he dances her behind the Christmas tree, and she comes out, and she's dancing with the boy next door because he found a tuxedo to show up for the very last song. And it's just one of those great scenes, and sometimes when I'm really sad, I'll turn to my husband and say, I just need a Christmas tree scene in my life. Like, I just need something so spectacular to happen. So that happens, and then, so you think that's the apex of the movie, it's so wonderful. No. She goes home, and that night she's told by her father, they're all told that they're moving to New York City, and they're not going to be there for the World's Fair, because that's the whole movie's built around the World's Fair coming to St. Louis. And they're all so sad, and her little sister runs outside, and she smashes all of these snowmen, and Judy Garland goes out, and she's supposed to sing, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. But the original version... The original lyrics that were written for this song, she read them and said, there's no way I can sing this. I will not sing this song. I will sound like a monster to sing this to a sad child. And I want to share with you the original lyrics of this song. So this is how it originally was. It said, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may all be living in the past. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Pop that champagne cork. Next year, we may all be living in New York. No good times like the olden days, happy golden days of yours. Faithful friends who were dear to us will be near to us no more. But at least we will all be together if the Lord allows. From now on, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. You can see why she said, I'm not singing that version. That is a terrible version. That's mean to sing to a small child. So she had him rewrite it. And the, of course, you know, the, the original lyricist, is an artist, and artists don't like to get feedback. I know some of you are artists out there. You don't like it. You think the original version's fine. He resisted, but they convinced him. And so this is, this is the second version of the song. Some of you may know this version. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year, all our troubles will be miles away. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yours, faithful friends who, will be, who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon we may all be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. So that's, you know, it gets a little better, right? It says, in the future, things should be better. We're going to have to muddle through and figure it out. But maybe there's some hope in that song, right, rather than, it may be your last, so enjoy it while you can. But then, what's really interesting is in 1957, Frank Sinatra was putting together his Christmas album. It was called The Jolly Christmas, and he wanted to sing this song, but he came to the original 
writer and he said, these lyrics aren't jolly enough. They're just, they're, they're a little too sad still. I need you to rewrite it. And of course he was like, oh my goodness, you want me to rewrite the song again? But he did. And so you see, that's the second version. I want you to see how the third version changes, okay? So this is the Frank, Frank Sinatra version. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. Through the years, we will all be together if the fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. And you can see there's no more muddling, right? They're not muddling through. Everything is perfect right now. He moved everything into the present, right? Right now, all of our troubles are miles away and everything's wonderful and all the people we love are here and everything's perfect. And you can see with each version, the song gets a little shinier, right? And it starts to get a little bit better. And I think this starts to reflect some of our Christmas expectations because what's happened is we start to think, well, it's Christmas. And so all of our troubles are now miles away. Everything's perfect and shiny and wonderful. We don't need to muddle. We're hanging stars on the highest, but that's what we're doing. Christmas is perfect. And so it set us up to have really weird Christmas expectations. And I want to show us what some of these expectations are. Like, for example, decorating your Christmas tree. Some of you think this is what my Christmas tree is going to look like when I decorate my Christmas tree. It's going to be wonderful. And then you get to reality, and this is what your Christmas tree looks like. And you think, but where are all my troubles? They're supposed to be miles away, right? Or how about this one? Parents, photos with Santa, right? You think that it's going to be so wonderful. They're going to meet Santa. It's going to be magical. And then this happens, right? How many of you had kids cry when they meet Santa? Scary for kids, right? Or Christmas cookies. Now you see these Christmas cookies and you think, they're going to be so beautiful. And then yours come out and they look like this. And you think, what's wrong with me? My sister actually baked Christmas cookies that are like our family Christmas cookies and she actually put on Facebook last night and they look basically like that. She's like, I don't know what happened. I'm like, I don't know either. Present wrapping, right? You think, I'm going to wrap the most beautiful, I don't need to pay for present wrapping. I can wrap a beautiful present. And then when you're done, your present looks like this and you think, man, I should have paid that extra $5 to get my present wrapped. Or like you, you go out and you spend all this money for your kids, right? And you think, oh, my kids are going to love they're going to be so happy. They're going to love everything I get them. And then they open their present and they go like this. You didn't give me everything. I, what the thing that's missing under the tree or they got more than me. I mean, you know, if you have more than one kid, they count the presents, right? And they, and they, now they like measure the size too. Like they're, they have more bigger presents than I have. So, okay. How about this one? Um, matching Christmas pajamas. This is kind of the thing, right? You think we're going to get matching pajamas. I mean, you go into Target now and it's like, lines of matching pajamas. You think we're going to look amazing. Everyone's going to get up. Our hair is going to be perfect. We'll take a family photo. And then it looks like this Christmas morning because your kids are like, I don't want to, I don't even know where my pajamas are. They're scratchy. I don't want them. Like they're just all over the place. Hair's a mess. You know, you're lucky if anyone's, if anyone looks picture worthy at all. And then here's another trend, right? You want to put your dog in a Christmas sweater. And you think, my dog's going to look awesome in this Christmas sweater. I'm going to take pictures, put it on Facebook, I'm going to get 5 million likes. And then you put your dog in a Christmas sweater, it looks more like this. And you think, my dog doesn't look good in a Christmas sweater. And you're lucky if it's even sitting still, right? And then the last one, we all think the first snow, we want a white Christmas. We want it to look like this, and it's going to be so lovely. And then it snows, and we have to go out, and it looks like this. 
Anything, I hate driving in the snow, it's terrible. First snow looks really bad really quickly, right? So we have all these expectations. And we think Christmas is gonna be so magical. All of my troubles will be miles away. It's Christmas, we're having a merry little Christmas. And, and then we think, we add the Jesus into this and we think, oh, well, and, and Jesus comes, up, comes along and now everything's good, right? Life is perfect because Jesus shows up on the scene. There's no more trouble. That's not really our Christmas story. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he stirs up all sorts of trouble for just about everyone. And so I think if we look at our, our real Christmas story, if we go back to the origins of our Christmas story, we will see what our true expectations around Christmas should be. So let's, let's start at the beginning. We're going to start in Matthew 1, and it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So if you're familiar with, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you've probably heard it from Mary's perspective, right? And Mary's there, and she's this young teenage girl, and an angel shows up and he says, hey, you are highly favored by God, and you're going to have a baby. And she goes, that's not really possible. How is that going to happen? He says, with, all, with God, all things are possible. And she says, yes. And it is a big yes. It is not an easy yes. And being highly favored by God for Mary creates all sorts of trouble in her life. And Mary's story is a great story. And we're going to save Mary's story for another day because we're going to focus on the other parent of Jesus, which sometimes we don't think about, who's Joseph. And Joseph's story is also one that becomes really complicated with the coming of Jesus. So we're told Joseph was pledged to be married. He's betrothed to Mary. And back then, it's not like a modern-day engagement where they exchange a ring, and they've decided they're going to get married, and they're planning a wedding, and they're so excited, and this is young love. It was actually a legal process. To be betrothed was a legal process. It was normally arranged by families, right? And so Joseph and Mary might have known about each other and of each other, but they didn't know each other. They probably maybe had one conversation, maybe not even. Right? So they, they didn't know one another, but there's this legal process that they go through where there's witnesses that sign it, and you get betrothed, and then normally 12 months later or within 12 months, you become legally married, and then they do the ceremony where they say where she would, the wife would literally walk from her father's house to her new husband's house, and then they, they would, that would be their marriage. Right? So, so this hasn't happened yet, but they are in a legal agreement. They're in a binding agreement. Betrothal is so legal that if Joseph were to die, even before they're officially married, Mary would be considered a widow. So this is a big deal that, that they're betrothed. It's not just an engagement where they like each other, okay? And then it says they're found out, she's found out to be pregnant. She's discovered to be pregnant. So again, Mary and Joseph probably didn't know one another or definitely not well enough, Mary didn't come to Joseph after the angel showed up and said, hey, just want to let you know something weird happened last night while we're planning this wedding thing, right? That's not what happened. With the fact that she's discovered to be pregnant means she's probably starting to show that she's pregnant at this point. So she's far enough along to be showing that she's pregnant. And this is a very big deal. This is a really big deal because it's not, it's, it's not a small matter if the one that you are betrothed with finds himself to be pregnant and you are not the source of that. So this is what the law says. because We're told that Joseph is a man of the law. He's a righteous man who follows the law. This is the law. It comes from Deuteronomy. 
says, if a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity, then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is the proof um, of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and then give, give them to the young woman's father because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife, but he must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. And right away we can kind of see the law doesn't seem very fair, right? Like he's in the wrong, he gets fined. She's in the wrong, she gets stoned. But this is more than just purity that's going on here, okay? Whether we like it or not, right? We don't have to agree with the cultural context, but this is the cultural context. This isn't about the, the purity of virginity. This is an inheritance-based culture. And so why that is so important is the way that they survive, the way families survive is by living off the land that they own. And so families need to generate enough family members to work the land, and they need a, a legally protected, legally honored heir to continue on the family line. Otherwise, the inheritance is up for grabs, right? So the reason why virginity is such a big issue for women is that there can be no question about the paternity of the heir, right? There can be no, there can be no question about that, or else it, it, you could lose your inheritance. You could lose your land, which would mean you would lose your livelihood. It's not like they could just go get another job. They wouldn't be able to support themselves any longer. So this isn't because Mary's a hussy and she's, she's sleeping around. That's not what's going on. This is because now Joseph, his inheritance, right, his whole family line is up in the air because now there would be another heir that could potentially claim his inheritance. And so Mary being found pregnant is a really big deal. And while the penalty in the law was being stoned to death, the, the Israelites weren't doing that at this point because they're under Roman occupation. They're not allowed, you're not allowed to kill anyone under Roman occupation. You can't, you can't perform executions, only Rome can do that. But Mary's life and reputation would be over, totally over, and Joseph knows this. And he is torn up about this situation because he is a righteous man. And so he can't continue with the betrothal. It's very clear that this is in violation of the law. He can't, he can't go for it. And he has the right to make a public spectacle out of this. This is an honor-based society. And his honor has, has been uh, challenged. His, he's been disrespected. And he has a right to drag her before the town elders and before everyone else and make a big scene out of it but he doesn't want to do that. He's torn between doing what is righteous and also doing what is right. And so he discerns that he's going to quietly divorce Mary. And again, their betrothal is a legal, legal arrangement. And so it, there's a legal process that needs to happen to end it. He would need to bring people together. He would need to have witnesses sign it. But he wants to do this with as little damage to Mary's reputation as possible. I mean, the damage is already done, but he wants to, he wants to avoid her, you know, 
making it worse. He's not vindictive. So he thinks he's solved this, and then his story gets infinitely more complicated. So this is what we read. As he considered this, and that word considered means to like think through, to really like, to, he's, he's wrestling over it. He's, he's really trying to, to, to figure out what to do. He's giving it serious thought. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through, the, through his prophet, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so that night, an angel appears to Joseph in his dream, and he says, you don't see the whole picture. You don't quite know all that's going on here. Mary hasn't been unfaithful to you. What is going on here is from God, and this child is part of God's big deliverance plan. And so don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. But there's lots of reasons for Joseph to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. This is not an easy yes that is being asked of Joseph. Because no matter how this thing turns out, Joseph's reputation is, is ruined. And it's a humiliating experience for them. Because let's, let's do the math, everyone. Even if they got married the next day, the baby's not showing up nine months later, right? Baby's showing up before nine months. And so, so the assumption is either going to be Joseph acted dishonorably towards Mary, and so Joseph is a scoundrel and didn't do the right thing, or Mary, Mary had an affair, Mary, Mary was sleeping around, and this child is illegitimate. No matter what, Joseph is in a bind here. This is not an easy yes. And then he's told, like, this is, this is part of God's big redemption plan, and you have a part to play. Because he said, you are to name the, son, the child Jesus. And naming the child was reserved for the father. And so what the angel is saying is, I want you to step up, and I want you to claim this child. That's part of your role in this, is to claim this child, which puts Joseph's reputation on the line, right? The assumption is then Joseph has done wrong by Mary. And, and then he's also, he's named Joseph, son of David. And part of the role that he has to play is he's in the line of David. And the Messiah is prophesied to come from the line of David. So Joseph, he's not just a periphery character. He, he actually has a significant role to play. And so he's told, take Mary as your wife. And, and so what does he do? Because this, this is, it's his choice. He's within his rights to, to dismiss Mary and be done with it. So what does he do? This is what we're said. This is what we're told. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Joseph said yes to God's crazy plan. At his own personal expense, Joseph said yes, and we have to go, why? I mean, yeah, sure, an angel showed up and told him to do it, but, you know, he could have been like, what did I eat for dinner last night? Like, that I had that crazy dream. Right? Why would he demonstrate such radical obedience? And it's because there's this promise of a bigger story, of a, of a bigger work, that he is willing to say yes to temporary trouble because there's a bigger story at work. And we see that. We see this promise at work in, in this child with the two names that are given to him. So the first one is you will name him Jesus. 
And Jesus means God saves. And he's told this child is going to bring salvation. But it's not the salvation that everybody thought. right? Because it says he's going to bring salvation for, for your sins. But what Israel was waiting for was salvation from their enemies' sins. Right? They were waiting for a political revolution to, for the Messiah to come and punish Rome. But what the angel says is actually this child is going to come and save humanity from the thing that actually is keeping humanity down, the real problem. So the first big promise why Joseph can say yes to this totally nuts situation is, oh, God is coming to save us. God is coming to rescue us and set the world right. But then the second name that is given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, and what we get is God is not far away. God isn't looking at our trouble from a distance. God is close to us. God cares. God loves us. God has come to save us, and God is with us in our trouble. And what we see is that our Christmas story is really a story about compassion. Because when Joseph and Mary say yes to God, that's not the end of their trouble. It is the beginning of their trouble, right? They have to flee to Egypt because Herod is, gonna, is looking for Jesus and wants to kill him. He's a little baby. You know, their life just gets more and more and more complicated with saying yes to God. It is a story of compassion because compassion is willingness to come alongside in the midst of trouble. It's not saying, saying no to trouble. All my troubles will be far away when I say yes to God's plan. Saying yes to God's plan, joining God's rescue plan, is stepping right into the middle of trouble. And so Brian McLaren, he frames it well. He says this. When we see with God, we see with compassion. Just as compassion bring God's, brings God down to earth to share in our pain and struggle, compassion leads us into downward mobility too. See, our Christmas story is a story about God with us. God coming down to be with us in the midst of our struggles. It's about God's compassion, and it's about a call for all of us, just like Joseph, to say yes to a life of compassion. And this is how Henry Nouwen defines compassion. I think it's a little long, but I think it's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. And it says this. The word compassion is derived from the Latin words pati and cum, which together mean to suffer with. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. When we look at compassion this way, it becomes clear that, that is something, something more is involved than a general kindness or tenderheartedness. See, compassion isn't just feeling bad for someone or thinking good thoughts or you know, sharing thoughts and prayers. Compassion is to step in to someone's trouble. It is to come alongside. It is to suffer alongside of them. And Jesus is the embodiment of compassion. Jesus is God from on high come down to be with us. And that's what we remember in this Christmas season. See, the Christmas leading up to Christmas, this is a season known as Advent. 
And Advent, this is a quote from Brian McLaren, Advent is when we Christians celebrate God's downward movement to us. God in Christ coming down to a poor and humble woman, down into her womb, down into a stable, down into hay, and that's just the beginning. When Jesus comes of age, he doesn't climb a mountain and live above the fray in a contemplative cave or commune. He moves continually down into the mess of human history. He moves down into the struggle of human politics and economics, down into the ugliness of human ignorance and misunderstanding, down into the horror of human injustice and bigotry, and even down into the tragedy of human violence and murder. God chooses to save us, not from a distance, but to come right alongside of us. The, the author of the book of Hebrews says he is familiar with our sufferings. He is familiar with the things that are hard for us, that make life feel impossible, that make it feel like things aren't working. He's not distant. And then with that, he calls us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, to live a life of compassion, to come alongside of him, to join him, to say yes to all kinds of trouble. Again, Brian McLaren says it surprises many people to hear God call them down. We think God is up. We're trained by the ladder of success to think it's for climbing, not descending. But God's mobility is opposite our own. The call to service is offensive to those who seek fame, comfort, advantage, safety, and status. But it is joyful and good to those who seek to put compassion into action. See, saying yes to compassion, saying yes to God is allowing God to disrupt our plans and disrupt our lives and inconvenience us and ask us to do things that we would otherwise say no to because we would rather be comfortable. We would rather say, all of my troubles are miles away. But that's not the call. See, Jesus doesn't even say, once you start following me, all your troubles will be my way. Jesus says this. This is his promise. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. This is right there. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. The message of the gospel isn't now that Christmas is here, now that Jesus has showed up, all of our troubles are currently miles away. The message of Christmas is one day, all of our troubles will be miles away. One day, everything will be made right. But in this world, there's trouble. And take heart. And how do we take heart? The same way Joseph did. We cling to those two promises. God saves. God has not left us on our own. You are not on your own. You are not alone. God has come to make your life work. I always say this. I got it from Andy Stanley. Jesus makes life better and makes us better at life. That's, that's part of this. God saves. God's come to heal us. And Emmanuel, God is with us. Even in the midst of trouble, God is close to us. God is not far away, indifferent, or cold, or looking on, or, or waiting for you to figure it out. God is right beside you. That is how we take heart, and he's won the ultimate victory. And so we are called not up and away from all the trouble. We're called to step right into the middle of it, right into the center of it. But it's not an easy thing. And I, I like how Henry Nouwen describes it. He says, it is not surprising that compassion, understood as suffering with, often evokes in us a deep resistance and even protest. 
It is important for us to acknowledge this resistance and to recognize that suffering is not something we desire or to which we are attracted. On the contrary, it is something we want to avoid at all costs. Therefore, compassion is not among our most natural responses. We are pain avoiders, and we consider anyone who feels attracted to suffering abnormal or at least very unusual, right? To be a compassionate person is to be an unusual person. It is to stand out in the world. It's one thing to be a sympathetic person. Oh, I feel so bad for them, right? But sympathy is at a distance. I feel bad for me, but it's not going to mess up my life. I don't really have to do anything about it. Compassion is I'm going to step right into the middle of it. Not that trouble is miles away, but I step into trouble with hope. And when we meet compassionate people who are willing to allow God to disrupt their lives, who allow God to inconvenience them, to say yes to temporary trouble because they have a bigger picture in mind, they stand out. And I want to tell you about one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. His name is Larry. And I met Larry in a short-term mission trip when I was in college to Honduras. And uh, we, we were a small team, and we were supposed to go do, like, a big project, like, go build a water filtration system in, in a village, but it didn't work out. And so instead, we went and spent two weeks with this group of missionaries who just, they, they, they said, you're just going to come live life with us. We're not going to go somewhere else. This is how we live. And so I got to see how they live, and I got to see how Larry lived. And Larry was an American, and he gave up everything to move to this very small village in Honduras to work with subsistence farmers. I mean, these are farmers that they, they were just farming their little plot of land and they survived off of whatever they could grow. And a lot of them, their land was rocky and it was, and it was hilly. Sometimes they had to hold onto like a pole in order to steady themselves to do the farming. And they didn't have a lot of resources. And so what did Larry do? He moved there and he used his resources to start experimenting with different crops to see what could this soil take? How could I improve the life of these farmers? And he committed, I will only plant things and experiment with things that I can share that would make these, these people's lives better. And so while we were there, Larry had a major setback. So he had this plot of land, and overnight, these cows had come in, and they'd trampled his fence, and they'd eaten all of these crops that he'd been working on, like tons of, tons of work and research just down the drain. And someone asked him, Larry, why don't you just put up an electric fence so the cows won't trample your crops? And he said, no one around here can put up an electric fence. How can I be one of them if, if, I, if I can protect my land in this way and they can't? How will they trust me if I'm not one of them? Yes, I can provide resources that they don't have, but I don't want to stand out in this way that I'm not among them, that I don't know the, way, the, the actual things that they're going to suffer through. Because he was not the only one who ever had cows trample down their fence and eat all of their crops. And so there were so many people who shook their head at Larry and didn't understand him. And thought, you are wasting your, like, imagine what you could do on a large scale. But instead, you're in this little village working with this little community, and none of you will ever meet Larry, right? You're, you're not going to, you only know about him because I met him. Right? He's not going to make it in the paper. He's not going to be a story people tell. But Larry gave up everything to embody the gospel in this one place, right? Larry built a, a hut there out of the same material that they built. He started raising rabbits to see, like, will these be sustainable and I can start sharing them with my neighbors. Larry embodied the good news of Jesus because he was among them. He was with them. He was one of them. Right? When Jesus came, he didn't, he didn't say, well, I don't understand you. It says he is familiar. He became 
human. He is with us and, and of us, and he knows us. And so Larry committed to living life in a way, not above everyone else, but with everyone else. But Larry was also, he embodied the salvation of Jesus, of bringing goodness about in the midst of trouble. Because that's what compassion is. It is being alongside someone and pointing to Jesus in the midst of trouble. Not directing someone to Jesus, but walking them towards Jesus and being in it with them. And every single one of us is called is called to a life of compassion. And you don't have to be like Larry and give up everything and move to another country. Because if you were to meet him, what was so striking is he was living this very ordinary life, this extraordinary faith embodied in a very ordinary day-to-day life. Getting up, farming, knowing his neighbors, going to bed, like making dinner. It wasn't anything like wild and crazy. But his life changed my life. Because I saw this is what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Is wherever you are, wherever you're called, to be someone who is willing to step into the trouble of others and step alongside of them and working to bring about hope working to bring about the kingdom of heaven to be the same as the kingdom of earth. This is compassion. And every single one of us is able to do that. Every single one of us who's a follower of Jesus, we are all called, just like Joseph, to be able to say yes to temporary trouble. Why? Because we have a bigger vision. God is doing something great. And the story is going somewhere awesome. And so we go to the middle version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas right? That right now we are muddling through, and there's a lot of trouble in this world, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's sorrow, but we keep our eyes on someday soon. Our troubles will be out of sight, because Jesus is working right now to put everything right, and part of the way that he does that is through you and me. It's our call, just like Joseph, to be part of God's rescue story, and it's not an easy call. Again, to close, Brian McLaren says this, our yeses count most when we receive mistreatment rather than praise for our effort. To say yes to doing good and then be ignored. To say yes to doing right and then be misunderstood and criticized. To say yes to being loving and then to be vilified and even crucified. This is the territory into which we will all someday be invited. This is the yes of not my will, but your will be done. And so this Christmas, you know, each week, and hopefully you saw it outside, we've got a display being built. And each week, there's been a way for you to respond to the sermon with these snowflakes. And if you go outside and go out in the lobby and look, all of those snowflakes that are hanging up are prayers. Those are people's prayers that are hanging up on our ceilings. And it's beautiful. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes each time. And, And for you today... I'm going to invite you and challenge you to stop before you leave. And, and don't just let this be a message that bounces off and then you go Christmas shopping or go watch a football game or go get lunch. Like, stop and really, really reflect on what does God want for me this Christmas? And the question I want us to think about today is what does compassion look like in your life this Christmas? What does saying yes, just like Joseph said yes at great personal cost, like Larry said yes, a great personal cost. What does saying yes to God's crazy plan look like for you? And that could be a cause, 
right? It could be a big cause that you really want to be part of, but it could be a neighbor or a coworker or a family member that maybe you just need to be more patient with or someone that you are going to invite in or, or um, whatever that is. Maybe it's an issue at work. What does compassion look like for you? What does it look like to say yes to God's rescue plan, even if it inconveniences you, even if it invites temporary trouble? Because we know that one day in Jesus, all of our trouble will be out of sight. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you have come to live among us, that you know us, that you love us, that Jesus, you have come to save but that you have drawn near and that you are familiar with all that's going on in our lives, Lord. And we thank you for your compassion towards us. And we recognize that you call us as followers of you, Jesus, to be compassionate people in the world, to stand out in that way because compassion is not natural and it's difficult and it's hard. Would you help each of us to stop and really reflect on what does compassion look like for us? What are you calling us to say yes to in this holiday season. How can we partner with you in your great rescue plan? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.